This is deadairradio.org. It's a Grateful Dead radio program, the unofficial Grateful Dead radio program for the official releases. It airs on a bunch of radio stations around the globe, and every so often we get to bust out an interview, like uh, checking in with the boys with the Owsley Stanley Foundation. They talk a little bit about the man they call Bear, also the foundation, and the releases. We've got a lot to cover, so we'll do uh, quick introductions. That way we'll know whose voice is who and what they're all about, and then we'll get into the fun. I'm Starfinder Stanley. I'm the president of the Osley Stanley Foundation and the Bears' son. I'm Hawk, and I am the executive producer for releases, the corporate secretary, the lawyer, and often the mailroom. <laughs> The Owsley Stanley Foundation is a 501c3 public charity, nonprofit organization that we founded after my dad died. You know, he had left an archive of over 1,300 reels of soundboard recordings that he'd made in his time working, developing the first sound systems that were designed to produce high fidelity, amplified rock and roll music. You know, so when he started off as a sound man, sound systems were were pretty rudimentary and he was an audiophile and wanted better quality sound and so he started as the first sound man for the Grateful Dead and as he built his sound systems uh, he wanted to be able to hear what the audience was hearing to improve the sound Uh, so he started a habit of creating what he called his sonic journals which was basically a an audio diary of the show as the audience experienced it so he could listen back to it and hear what the sound system was producing and improve the sound system. He also used the sonic journals to make the band listen to because he thought it was really important that they know what the audience heard because you're on stage, you get a completely different soundscape than the audience. And as the artist, he thought that it was really important that they could be put into the audience's shoes so that they knew what they were receiving and compare that to what they were trying to transmit and be able to to give the audience a, a more true vision of what the musicians wanted to give them. And as a side effect of that, his recording techniques really capture the experience of being at the show, being an audience member at the show and hearing what happened. And so there's a sense of space and you can really hear the room in a way that a lot of intentional live recordings don't capture. And so there's a certain magic in Bear's recordings that can transport you into the place and time where these recordings were made. And he was pretty stubborn about wanting you to experience the show rather than the recording. So he didn't really love it when his recordings were used as source material and cut up and remixed and altered because it changes how that sounds. And he really felt that an important part of the magic of the tapes was being able to experience that that show. There's an aspect of Bear was trying to set things up so that he wasn't part of the process. I mean, he, he really wanted to give all of the control to the musicians. He wanted them to be able to know and hear and transmit exactly what they wanted to the band, uh, from the band to the audience. And 
he didn't want to be a conduit. He didn't want to be standing at the board making decisions, changing the level of this, changing the level of that. He didn't think that was his job. He thought that was the musician's job. They figure out what they want to give the audience, and he gets it to them. He didn't want to be standing there. He wanted to be enjoying the show, but he would not stand at the soundboard all the time. He'd be moving around in the audience because he wanted to hear what the audience was hearing. Okay, it sounds good here. That's the, that's the big thing about you know the way he set up a sound system was completely different from the way everybody else would set up a sound system because if you set up a sound system with you know one stack of speakers on the left side, one stack of speakers on the right side, like your your home hi-fi system, and you sit in the sweet spot right in the middle, you get this beautiful stereo image, which happens right there where your soundboard is. And if you're sitting there the whole time, you're patting yourself on the back going, I'm doing a great job. But as soon as you leave the soundboard, you go to the right, you go to the left, you go up, you go back, it sounds different. And if you sit at the soundboard the whole time, you don't know that. You don't experience that. And so he wasn't recording in order to make an album. He was recording to capture the sound. So when he was mixing, he was mixing because he was trying to create the best live experience. He was mixing live sound. And then when he was recording, he was capturing live sound. So that's the difference. He wasn't trying to tweak things to sound a certain way on a recording. He was trying to make the concert sound as good as it could and then capture what the audience would experience. You know, one of the things about Bear's approach was he did not like to change the sound with using EQ. He felt that you should be capturing the sound and transmitting it. If if it doesn't sound right, you know, move the mic. If it still doesn't sound right, change the mic. But don't color. Don't add your opinion to the musicians. That's not your job. He would set up the sound system and record whoever was playing through the sound system. If the other bands that were playing with the dead didn't have a sound man, he'd run sound. And so he had a lot of Grateful Dead recordings, obviously, but he also recorded over 80 other artists who played with the Grateful Dead and on stages that he set up over the years. So it's quite a, a broad array of music from a very seminal time in American music history. By the same token, because he was so excellent at that and because he knew that he was excellent at that, that was his producer's value add to the mix. His concert mix for that night justified his producer's credit. And also all the skill that went into selecting the microphones and setting up the stages and all of the elements to be transparent, to not be coloring and altering was a huge skill set that had to be applied to not, I mean, what do they say? Uh, the, the most advanced technology is one that's invisible because yeah. it you don't see it because it's so good. The clean, crisp, clear mix, the unadorned mix, if you focus on quality and you focus on clarity and sort of sonic purity, and we know that Bear valued purity and quality above all, so it's almost like a unproducer or a non-producer producer. The opposite of what we think of as the technical wizardry of production. You know, all of it being behind the scenes. And if it succeeded, you wouldn't even know it was there. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times there's that, oh, we can fix that in post mentality. And Bear was adamantly opposed to that. His attitude was, there's nothing to fix. That's what you played. 
if you wanted it to be different, you should have played it differently. You know, there, yeah, there was feedback. That's what happened. <laughs> that's the show. If you take it out, you've changed something. And that's not the experience. And so that is part and parcel of a sonic journal is what happened, happened. Every time I work on the Owsley Stanley Foundation projects, it's like a breath of fresh air. Like there's, from the moment of discovery when I'm, you know, listening to these reels for the first time and having these moments of like, oh my goodness, this is so good. I gotta share this with somebody. We gotta get this out in the world. So you've got that initial excitement. Then you've got sort of piecing together all the connections. We love sort of spheres of influence and cross-pollination and, you know, who was playing with whom on what given night in this jam the endless sleuthing that goes into sort of figuring out who's who and what's what. And then finally working with the artists and sort of bringing a piece together so that we've got not only the narrative arc of the archive that, that we're trying to tell, but also the narrative arc of a particular project that we're trying to bring to light. Each path that these tapes have taken from discovery to preservation to production has been unlike every other one. <laughs> they are all different. They are as varied as the artists that perform on them and their paths to the market have been uh, quite adventurous. Artists have been fun to work with. Artists have been appreciative of what we do. Many of them have been thrilled at the discovery of material that they've long forgotten. Still others, and probably a more common pattern, are just not as interested in the old stuff and feel like they're done with it and not interested and they're really thrilled with the things they're doing today. And so it's always an interesting dialogue because that first time you pick up the phone and have contact with them, you're never sure how this is going to play out. For Yorma and Jack, who are, are dear friends and really appreciative of our findings in the archive from their material in the early days, it took about two and a half years to piece together that Yorma and Jack album. Some of it was because we only found half a show and the other portions of the shows were buried on the back ends of, unlabeled on the back ends of Grateful Dead and other acts that performed on the same nights as those shows. Uh, so it just took a long time to get it into a condition that we felt comfortable sharing with the artists. And, and once they heard that particular show that we ended up releasing, it just blew them away, uh, as it did us. And, and we had preserved, mm, I don't know, but at that time we had 26 of their reels preserved. And, you know, that one kept coming right up to the top. And that's the one that we pitched to them, and they agreed, and it has been a, a beautiful partnership. Allman Brothers, by contrast, they, they came to us, and, uh, I mean, I reached out to them, but they said, hey, we were looking for you. <laughs> and Allman Brothers, that whole thing started with Starfinder's beautiful letter to Jimmy Carter. And when we did the Doc Watson release, just before it came out, Jimmy Carter had a health scare, and of course, the healing power of music, Starfinder knew that uh, the doc box might help him recover. Apparently, it worked. Basically, Jimmy Carter was the first person in the country to receive the, the Doc and Merle Watson box set, and the reason we sent it to him was because T. Michael Coleman, the bass player, told us that the only time he saw Doc nervous was when they played at the White House for their bluegrass brunch uh, on a day that was devoted to Americana music. And Doc Watson played at brunch and Bill Monroe played at primetime in the evening for the dinner performance. And while Doc was playing, people were talking over him. And Jimmy Carter interrupted, took the mic and said, hey, y'all need to pay attention to this American treasure. 
And as he handed the mic back to Doc, Doc said to him, oh, you make me nervous, Jimmy. So that's why we sent Jimmy Carter the box set. And a couple months later, when he was recovered, he sent us a, a beautiful uh, presidential response back. And the last line in the letter from the, the president was, uh, and I look forward to your Almond Brothers release. The Allman Brothers played fundraising concerts for Carter when he was running for president. So there's that connection there. As soon as we got that, I called the Allman Brothers, and they called me back right away because they said the first thing that, that Bert said to me was, you know, we've been looking for you. We didn't know who to call. We want to get that uh, compilation that Bear recorded and produced back in 97 back on the market. And, you know, of course, Crazy Alley Stanley Foundation fashion, we said, well, how about all the source material for that, too? How about all the cut-up tapes that went into that compilation. Part of the problem with the shows was that they were a new band. He didn't know how long their songs were, so it could be a little hard to anticipate when you should switch a tape, and then they go off on a 25-minute long song, and you run out of tape. So, so there are a few um, uh, heartbreaking tape switch drops in there, but um, but there's you know great music. So and The other thing I look at is how did he adapt to what Doc Watson would do in terms of, so all of a sudden Doc calls in the piano player and let's get a piano. Oh, I didn't know the piano player was coming. <laughs> oh, now I got a mic a piano and let's bring in the, you know, Billy Roberts on harmonica. And you know, there's this constant adapting that had to go on. And, you know, it's fun to imagine Bear pulling out more mics and scrambling to get this, you know, without holding the audience up and without holding the musicians up, but to make sure that everybody could be heard. I think he was never averse to holding people up. <laughs> but, you know, if it, if it was going to be done, it was going to be done right. But, he, you know, he had that quality of that underlying principle of how to do things. And I think if you have the basics down and your underlying premise is sound and how you approach the problems are sound, it allows you to apply them in these very different areas. I know one of the things about his Jefferson Airplane recordings was that no matter what he did, they would always turn everything up to 11 across the board. And so it was just constantly trying to keep things from from being blown off and clipping because they had no other volume but you know, full force. So, you know, that <laughs> you can only do what you can do in the moment. And, you know, in the recordings, we get to experience that as things evolved, there were failures. <laughs> things would blow up. The amp, the sound system would eat mice and spiders because it, it was screeching like an owl. That was the you know, part and parcel of, of Owsley right on the board was you're surfing the, the edge of technology. And, and sometimes it's a great ride. And other times you <laughs> You end up pressed against the bottom of the ocean trying to breathe. But, you know, it's all fun at the end of the day in retrospect, right? That historical context is so vital to what we're trying to accomplish. The history of these bands, it's the history of this music. It's the history of Owsley's recording processes and development of, of concert sound systems. You know, he had left an archive of over 1,300 reels of soundboard recordings. One of the problems is that these tapes are old. They're 45, 50, 50 plus years old, and they're deteriorating. And so we knew we had a finite amount of time to be able to recover the music that was on these tapes before the tapes deteriorated and the music was lost. And there's a lot of them. They're not all labeled. They're not all labeled properly. Some of them, you know, you'll 
read the box and transfer the reel, and it turns out it's a different tape. <laughs> so even when we think we know where things are, they're not always there. And so as we go through the and transfer more and more tapes, we find things that were mislabeled or misfiled. We have a series of inventories from over the years, and there are things we know should be in there that we can't necessarily find. So, you know, sometimes we'll start off down one trail and then discover something that makes us change direction and and adds to the story that we're trying to tell. But with the Sonic Journals, we're really trying to show people what Bear was recording as far as all of the different types of music. There's just such a, a wonderful richness of diversity of uh, artists in this archive. You know, it goes to the heart of part of what the Owsley Stanley Foundation is trying to do. We're not just trying to give these polished pearls of exquisite music, which we are uh, trying to give, but we also want to give people these seminal historical moments that otherwise would be moldering. We're starting to reach this sort of heyday where archives are being formed and a lot of this stuff is coming out more than ever before. We're not the only ones that are doing this, but I'm really glad to see that it's increasing in acceptability that you're getting more and more fans that understand that. We get just as much sort of mail about, thank you for including the the banter as for the songs and the insights that it provides. I mean, we got emails from scholars about the Jack and Yorma release about the stage announcements because people weren't sure who played at the barn at Rio Nido the next night. (laughs) The poster says one thing, but the announcer says another and explains that the whole event wasn't supposed to happen. And so they're going to make it happen. Uh, just had a different band. <laughs> it's actively adding to the knowledge that we have about what went on, when it went on um, back then. And that's, that's a huge part of what we're trying to do. There's a, a number of layers of musical history that we're trying to preserve and present here. Bear had a very eclectic music taste, and, uh, you know, the weirder the better. So, the, yeah, there's all sorts of things. And I think also part of what we're hoping to bring out in our releases when he had the opportunities to record some of the music that he liked that uh, wouldn't necessarily have been what you would expect in the San Francisco scene. By all accounts, he sought out Doc Watson to make these recordings. They had met most likely at the Marin County Bluegrass Festival, which Asley recorded most, if not all of it. To hear T. Michael Coleman tell the story, he then went to the boarding house the first night and sat down with Doc, and they were sitting around the table, and barehanded Doc a microphone. Doc was a blind musician, but very mechanically oriented. He said that if he wasn't blind, he would have he would have done something with his hands. He loved the technology and he loved the equipment and he loved the gear and they had a very sort of serious and hushed conversation about sonics and what Owsley would bring to this recording and then at the end he sort of nodded his head and Owsley set up and recorded those shows and at that point you know he was sort of known for it. This is about eight months after he'd recorded the Olden in the Way album at the same venue. So, and that one was released in a timely fashion right in that period and had just exquisitely clear and clean and really captured the sound of the room ambiance to it. So um, he knew that space. He knew how to mic an acoustic band in that space. And that was one of the things that when we started listening to the tapes, he had marked the dock 
as something special and we, we first heard that and heard the clarity um, on the level of the Olden and the Way recordings we said holy cow <laughs> gotta do this one first and then the trouble was trying to figure out which show we wanted to release and our ultimate solution was all of them because <laughs> we couldn't choose so that's why we came out of the gates with a seven disc set which was not what we <laughs> what we intended um, at first but uh, you know you gotta do what you gotta do and T. Michael Coleman was also influential with that. He came up with the title for us because we said, well, you know, people are going to be upset about, you know, these repeats. You know, you play Tennessee Stud every night. You play Mr. Mississippi and you every night. And he said, oh, shoot, we never played the same way once, let alone twice. So it was good advice. I'm glad we didn't cut anything on that. Uh, it's a masterpiece. It sets the bar. In particular on this latest release, there are two types of folks that would come to it. There are folks that know who the new writers are and they're ready for the deep dive. The second type, and we have a lot of fans that come to us from different flavors, different sonic flavors, different bands that they like, different music that they listen to, coming from different musical backgrounds and tastes. And they may not know who the new writers are, but they trust Owsley's recordings and they trust our judgment, at least in the four releases so far, and sort of picking things that they'll probably like. Speaking to that person, you really have to embrace the evolution that we're trying to get at. This is the dawn. So this is the early days, the, you know, even the sequencing of the colors of the digipacks in the CD box is designed to sort of present this sort of coming to light. And it starts in the darkness and it gets increasingly brighter. And you watch the band come together by disc five. That's a very unusual approach to a commercial release. That is not often for the faint-hearted. <laughs> you have to bring a sort of spirit of adventure. I mean, the first show on this is at the Student Union at Berkeley, very appropriately named Bears Lair. You know, so they're, they're playing at a Student Union, they hadn't even come up with their name yet. Sonically, this release, not the story of the New Riders in general, but at this point, the New Riders was the Jerry and Marmaduke show. You marry that unique attack to the steel guitar, or pedal steel guitar, with Marmaduke's unique voice and tremendous songwriting gift. You layer that with these progressive original tunes that really evoke the sort of psychedelic feel of the Bay Area with the various influences that were swirling through it. And you've got a very unique contribution to 20th century music. It's an honor for us to be able to tell this part of the story. This is just the very first coalescing of this music. And for a fan, getting an opportunity to hear them figuring out what they're doing is such a treasure. You know, it's not going to be the most polished, developed version of the song. By no means. The sound isn't going to be as crisp and clean as you know when they had everything going but you're getting to listen to them when they were just in the bar as it were rather than in an amphitheater and there's something to being able to visit that point in the process that is so special and i'm not going to remember all the details in the pitch but we went through dead bass and we identified how many times the dead or rather how few times the dead have played uh, most of these songs I think Kathy's Clown, they played twice. Slewfoot, they played nine times. Season of My Heart, Old Old House, both of those were five times or three times. Very, very rare songs 
in the Grateful Dead's repertoire. And to have sort of crystal clear versions of that. I mean, I've heard some of these songs on old tapes, not even soundboards necessarily, but I hadn't heard these versions. And they're extraordinarily rare. And that was really part of our, our pitch to Bobby as we sort of laid this out and said, Grateful Dead has never released these songs. New writers have never released these songs. We can't let these songs be lost. And your performance is outstanding. Plus, we've got Jerry foraying out into pedal steel and finding his way on that. Largest collection of Jerry Garcia on pedal steel yet released. Getting to hear these reels as they're transferred um, and then getting it put together in a way that we can get it out to people and then the responses that we get to each release, the positive emotions that we seem to engender every time we go out and do public outreach, I'm just always overcome with uh, how much love and affection and appreciation people have for all the different aspects of Bear's efforts in the world and the ways in which they've affected us both on a macrocosmic cultural level, but also each individual life. There's so many people who have come up to me and told me how they feel that even though they'd never met Bear, his presence and actions in the world had changed their lives for the better. We're really pleased to be able to do something to honor that and to make sure that we preserve that legacy. Because of the, the cost involved in trying to get the tapes transferred, it was a situation that we knew we had to do some fundraising. So we started the 501c3 to, to raise money to be able to transfer and preserve the tapes. And we did one capital campaign. I think it's important to understand the history. Essentially, we did one capital campaign when we just got started, raised our first $15,000 that way through Kickstarter or something, some equivalent. Grateful Dead then invited us to Fare Thee Well to participate in their Participation Row program and to share in the proceeds of their auction. Uh, that was our second infusion of cash. Hot Tuna then played a benefit concert for us back in 2015, and between the Grateful Dead and Hot Tuna, that's how we started preserving reels. We've been working on that for a few years now. We've we've been doing pretty well raising money and have uh, transferred, geez, I've lost track. Hawk, do you, do you remember the number? We are almost at 500. Almost at 500, 500. So, yeah. So. And here's the sort of how it all comes together. We haven't done any capital campaigns since, I think, 2014, 2015, because the, we've, what we've learned is that the sales of the releases generate enough uh, income uh, to fund the preservation effort for the most part and the production effort uh, for the next year. In addition to that, so that, that's why I can't underscore enough the value of if you want to continue to preserve this music, the best way to support it is to continue to buy it uh, because that money goes directly to the preservation effort and the production effort. The other way that we raise money these days, in addition to continuing to participate at Grateful Dead or Dead & Company shows, we go to several uh, shows a tour by invitation, Dead & Company, and Headcount. And that results in a significant financial assistance by the end of the tour. We also participate in Lock-In and the Peach Festival. 
those generate both outreach and additional funding. We set up a booth. We have a listening station and we have headsets. When bands aren't playing, we'll have uh, all the music that we play at the table is Owsley's recordings. Much of it is un- unreleased recordings, you know, samples uh, of things that we're working on. This sort of dovetails nicely into the sort of final way that, that we raise funds, and that's by adopting reels. And patrons can adopt reels. It's $400 a reel. It, you have to think of it as a, a pure charitable donation because we can't guarantee that you're ever going to hear the music that's on it. That goes towards the engineering costs of preserving the reel. If it ever is released, we would ensure a liner notes credit. And the new riders release is the first one where three patrons were, were honored in the liner notes for their contributions to the project and the preservation of the reels that went into it. It's a wonderful feeling when people that have, have preserved a reel come up to the table and say, hey, I'm so-and-so. And I go, I remember you. You preserved such-and-such. I've got it. You want to hear it? And pop the headset on them and let them hear a sample of the reel that they preserved that wouldn't uh, be in the universe, really, in this form without their efforts. I think it's important to point out that we are very, very focused on honoring musicians' rights. So we do not release music that is not a, with the cooperation and approval of the of the musicians who are on the music. That was something that Bear was was extremely adamant about, that we are partners with musicians. And so, you know, that's that's why we can't guarantee that music would be released because there's a process, and we're a, a component of and partners in, but these are not bootlegs. We do not put things out without the approval and cooperation and participation of the, the musicians and their states. And for the same reason, we can't just send a link to people. <laughs> you know, oh, you preserved this bill, here you go. And if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, it was, a, it was kind of a, a sacred trust between Bear and the artist. They understood that Bear was recording uh, to improve his craft. And I think there was a tremendous mutual respect, and that gave him this access and ability to record these tapes. And the last thing that he would ever want to do is use these tapes in a way that the artist didn't approve. And so that's part of our mandate. And we're working our way through it. And so what we've done is, as we preserve the tapes, we've been trying to focus on the, the most fragile ones first, and then also getting sponsors to identify specific tapes that they want to make sure are preserved and as we transfer the tapes, we listen to them and um, try to identify ones that merit release. And so we've started a, um, a series of releases called Bears Sonic Journals. We're a public charity. If you want to give us donations and grants, they're fully tax deductible. And all of the money goes to preserving the tapes, preserving this priceless, irreplaceable musical heritage, and um, trying to foster Bear's influences in the world moving forward. Creativity and improvisational music being the things that he really wanted to continue and develop and, and flower. So our website, OwsleyStanleyFoundation.org, is kind of our linchpin. We actually do a lot more dynamic content uh, updates on, on reels that have been sponsored. And we always try to give people the opportunity to uh, to get uh, their, their first taste of the Sonic Journals before the actual release date drops. So we usually do a, a special exclusive pre-release sale on the website. So if you're paying attention to our website or on the uh, mailing list, you'll find out about that. 
OwsleyStanleyFoundation.org. 